That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. My guest today is Mike Greenberg. If you listen regularly to the pod, you know I've already chatted with everybody involved with the previous and future iterations of these morning shows. Golick, Golick Jr., Wingo, and now Greenberg. And I've got to go out and get Beetle and Jalen Rose. Those are the two folks that are going to be hosting the new show, Get Up, which premieres April 2nd with Greenberg. So it's great to talk to him about what it was like to leave behind the incredible success of Mike and Mike after 18 years and the pressures and stress and maybe excitement of starting something new. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. That's what she said. Happy to have joining me, Mike Greenberg. You, of course, know him from Mike and Mike, and you'll be seeing him very soon on your television screens, the new show, Get Up. So I'm very excited to talk about everything that came before and everything that's coming after, and I appreciate a little bit of time, Mike. That's my pleasure, Sarah. It's been too long since I've seen you. How have you been? It has been a while. You and a couple other folks are prepping for these new shows, and I, I presumed that you were on the Pablo Torre tra- train where he goes to 18 different countries and hasn't worked in months, but uh, you've actually been working on prepping for the show, which is uh, no small feat, and I look forward to hearing how that's going. But I want to I go back to the beginning, since it's your first time on the pod, and talk a little about how you got here. Um, I know you went to, uh, to high school out in New York, and uh, what were you into as a kid? Were you always a big sports fan right from the start? I was. Um, so my family, like all families, was sort of a dysfunctional mess um, when I was growing up. And the one thing that we sort of all bonded over was sports. That, that was the dinner table conversation, um, literally in all cases. Um, I don't know anyone who is more passionate about sports than my mother. Um, who My mother, as I've jokingly said many times, and not even so jokingly, my mother would have left my father for Joe Namath, and my father would have applauded her for it. Uh, we grew up as a Jets family. So um, that was pretty much it. And I, right, right around whatever age it was, and I figured out I was never going to be the starting point guard for the New York Knicks, um, I figured out that I needed to do something in and around sports. I, I, I figured and felt that if I could do something around sports, it would never feel like work. And, and while that isn't 100% accurate, I think I was on to something. There's, there's no question, and I tell my kids this all the time, um, that if you can find something to do for work that feels like something that you might like to do anyway, it's a great blessing. Um, you know, when I'm on vacation or when I have been off uh, for these months without having a daily show, I don't have to watch games and I don't have to be up on what's happening in the, in the news, um, in the world of sports the way I normally am. And yet I wanted to. I chose to because I'm just interested in it. And so that has been um, my biggest, probably the single the single thing of which I'm the most interested since as long as I can remember. Were you, did you try to play sports in, early on? Well, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the, the thought, you know, jokingly <laughs> on your part, that I wasn't <laughs> obviously great at everything. And, and, and clearly I was. Um I turned down a couple of, uh, you know, scholarship offers to play mm. a variety of different sports, yeah. uh, you know, defensive line and, and yes. things like that. No, I mean, uh, you know, working with, with a, a professional football player every single day for 18 years makes a person look very small and, and ridiculously <laughs> unathletic. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a bad athlete growing up. I, I, I played sports all the time with my friends. Um, I just, I was not, um, uh, a world class or, or anything. I wasn't a college heptathlete or anything <laughs> like that. So I just was a kid playing sports like anybody else, but I was never good enough at anything that I was going to, and that anyone was going to take me seriously doing it. Yeah. But you still loved, loved playing and, and watching. Um, so what, what made you decide on Northwestern? Well, I had an uncle, and you're obviously a Chicagoan, and um, I had a great uncle who I was very close to who lived in Chicago, and so I liked the city. And I I went to Northwestern primarily because of the School of Journalism. I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and I I sort of teetered back and forth between wanting to do hard news and, and, um, and, and wanting to do sports. And I liked the journalism school and I liked the proximity to the city of Chicago. And it was the best decision I ever made. Um, I, I, I came very close to going to the University of Michigan instead. And I love, I love the University of Michigan, but um, I'm delighted with the decision to go to Northwestern. It's been an incredibly important part of my life. 
ever since. And um, it got me to Chicago, which changed my life in a variety of ways. I mean, not limited to, but including the fact that that's where I met and married my wife. So um, it, it, Northwestern has remained a really big part of who I am. Um, but the, the answer to whenever, you know, if we win a football game or lose a football game or win a basketball game or lose a basketball game, I always say, you know, I didn't go there for that. I, I root for the teams like crazy, but I, my proudest, um, my proudest alliance with the university is with the journalism school. It's the reason that I went there. And I think it is a big part of the reason why I've been able to accomplish whatever it is that I've been able to do. Yeah. Um, I, I saw that when you were at Northwestern, you were in a fraternity, and I'm trying to picture frat bro Greeny, and I'm having trouble. Mm. So I realized that, you know, at one point you were just a 20-something kid and not an esteemed journalist. So take me back there to a, a moment or a party or a time when we can all uh, uh, give ourselves a mental picture of Greeny in a frat. Well, I'm, I'm trying to uh, – what would be a good story that we could share that would be family-friendly? I mean, as you can probably <laughs> tell, I was – I was sort of a big man on campus. You probably can see that in me. <laughs> of course, um, yes. You know, we, we, fraternity life was, um, when I went to Northwestern, well, this is probably the best way I can think of to explain it. When I went to Northwestern, the, the town of Evanston, which you obviously know, many people listening probably don't, that's where Northwestern University is. It, it is and was the home of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And so Evanston was a completely dry town. There was nowhere to, you could not purchase alcohol in the town of Evanston. So the only place to go if you wanted to go someplace and, and, and party and drink and whatever it is that college kids like to do were fraternity parties. There were no other options unless you were going to get on the L and go into the city of Chicago, which is a lot of effort and, 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 and just something that you don't do when you're a freshman in college. At least I didn't. So joining a fraternity, that, that was really the center of social life. At Northwestern in, in the late 80s. I don't, I don't believe it's still that way. Evanston is a totally different town now. It isn't a dry town. There's a, there are a million restaurants and bars and things like that in town. So I think that's changed a lot. But that was a big part of the reason. Practically everyone I knew joined a fraternity when I got to college because that was where all of the social activity was. Um, and I was the guy who stood behind all the other guys whenever trouble would break out. I, that's probably <laughs> the best I can think of to describe it. Um, if there were ever any problems, ever any issues, I was I was always very good to be standing behind some of my. I had one fraternity brother who was RITC. Jim Mail was his name. Big, strong, huge dude. Um, and I just I parked myself behind that guy whenever there was a problem. That, <laughs> I learned that I learned that at a very early age. Can you share uh, maybe one thing that was required of you as a as a freshman when you were pledging that frat? Yeah, it was a it was. Um, this was before anyone knew – this was before hazing was a dirty word, and I don't mean to belittle the significance of this at all, the way they make kids drink and all that kind of stuff. That's extraordinarily dangerous. Um, but we didn't know that then. <laughs> so there right. was plenty of that going on, and there are certainly stories that I'm sworn to secrecy about, but some of them that aren't secret. When, when we went through our um, activation week, it was January, and, and you of all people know what January looks like in Evanston, Illinois – um, so we would have to spend un unreasonable amounts of time outside at night doing push-ups in the snow and mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Um, you know, th those th I would put, I would list those amongst the comparatively harmless things. And I would say also, to be clear, nothing ever happened that I, I felt my safety was was legitimately right. compromised or that I was in any real danger or anything like that. I'd like to think I wouldn't have gotten involved in anything like that. And, and again, I see some of the stuff that happens now, and it's just horrendous and, and um but yeah, so when got, i was going gotten out of it, control it, nothing like that yeah it's gotten i mean in some cases obviously to the point that we've seen you know kids die from this stuff um that that sort of thing to to my knowledge that wasn't going on anywhere at northwestern when i was there yeah so you're you you graduate from there and almost immediately you started working at wmaq right correct so i graduated in june and i started working at maq in August, I, I was working one day a week. My dad had a friend who um, worked for the, the, the then parent company of w, was a WMAQ radio in Chicago at that time. It was an all news station, um, and it was on 670 AM, which is now the frequency of the score. I, I, I think it's still the frequency of the score. Yeah. I'm not sure if it is or it yeah. isn't. Yeah. So, so I was an original member of the score years later when the score was on 820 AM. But so when I started at MAQ, it was all sports. And I was a production assistant, and I would 
write the stuff for the sportscasters and all that sort of thing. And I, I think about this day a lot, but there was a day I, I, I rented an apartment on North Sheridan Road all the way up north, 5200 North Sheridan, um, Sheridan and Foster. And that was my first apartment in Chicago out of college. And there was a day that I still remember so vividly. It was a bright, sunny day. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I was working hourly. I, I worked at my start out. I worked one day a week. I worked Saturdays and the rest of the week. I was a waiter at a restaurant on LaSalle Street called Burhops. And I, I, I remember thinking to myself, if I could just get a full-time job where I could write the sports for other people to read, that would be a great career. Like, that was my dream. That was what I wanted. That was, that, I thought that would be the greatest life. Um, and I, I try to remember that day a lot um, because, you know, whatever it is that I've been able to do has so exceeded any realistic expectations that I had that, um, I mean, it doesn't mean that every single day is perfect, but it's certainly way better than I, than I expected. Again, I, my, my goal then was to be someone who would write the sports news for someone else to read. And I thought if I was able to, to do that, then that would have been more than enough. And it probably would have been. And the fact that I've been able to do more than that has been a miracle. Um, but so that was my first job, and that was the job that I wanted. So I was a PA. The job was called News Production Assistant, NPA, at WMAQ Radio, and I was there for about two years. And then the sports director from there, who was a guy named Ron Gleason, was hired to start when they started the first all-sports radio station in Chicago, which is WSCR, The Score, um, and he knew me from, from being at the, at the station. He thought I was a hard worker and he liked my attitude. And so he hired me. So I was one of the original producers, um, at the score when it first started in January of 1992. And that really was my first foot in the door in a significant way. So you started as a producer there and then worked your way to on air. Correct. So I, I had done a tiny little bit of on air work at a tiny little, a radio network called the Illinois News Network, INN, where the guy who hired me and was my boss um, is Jeff Joniak, who is now the player. Oh, the nice. Chicago Bears. Yes. Yeah. So I've known Joniak for I love him. Like, 19, Such a good 1991. Dude. So that's 27 years ago, whatever it is. Um, so I've known Joniak that long. Great guy. So I had done a little bit of work on the air for them. And so what, what I did was I produced the afternoon show, which at that time was Dan McNeil and Terry Boers. And um, I asked Ron if after the, the, the um, after my shift, I could go out to Chicago Stadium when the Bulls played or the Blackhawks played, and I would just get tape for them, and I would record like a voice or something, and they would run it in the morning on Tom Share show in the morning. This is a lot of very inside stuff that I'm saying because I know you're from Chicago, and you'll know who <laughs> I'm talking about. People around the country will have no idea who I'm talking about. But these, this was the all-sports radio station in Chicago then. Um, and, a, and an extremely lucky thing happened to me, which is that when the station started, they did not hire anyone to go out and cover sports. They didn't they didn't hire anyone to be out there um, in a roving reporter kind of a role. And this was when the Bulls had Michael Jordan and were winning championships and the Bears were coached by Mike Ditka. I mean, Chicago sports were a really exciting, vital, fun um, place. It was it was a great time on the Chicago sports scene. And I was able to, there was a woman named Susan Waldman. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Or yeah, not. for sure. She, she now does the Yankee games in New York. But at that time, she was a roving reporter for WFAN. She would trap, she was like a, an electronic beat reporter for, for the sports radio station, New York WFAN. And I went to Ron and I said, I proposed that job. I said, we don't have anybody doing it. We need someone covering the bulls every single day. We need someone covering the bears every single day. And I, 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 I proposed the job and I, I sold myself for it and they hired me. So um, in June of 92, uh, I became a full-time reporter and I started traveling with the Bulls and I did that. I would, I would travel with the Bulls and they won the title. So I was with them through like the end of June. Then I'd cover a little baseball in the summer and then I would go to Platteville, Wisconsin, where the Bears had their training camp. And I would cover the Bears from the start of training camp all the way through to the end of their season. And then I would take a couple of days off, and then I would pick up the Bulls again. And it was the greatest job in the world. I was yeah. 24, 25 years old. I'm traveling with Michael Jordan. And when you would travel with the teams in those days, I don't know if it's still that way anymore, but you would get to stay in the team hotels. So I was staying in Ritz-Carlton's and Four Seasons <laughs> and play all over the country. It was fantastic. Um, and I was just thinking about this the other day, too. It's, it's an interesting sign of the times. When, when I would go on the road with the Bears – before the season started, the program director, Ron Gleason, bought airline tickets for me to fly to each of the games, eight road games, in these eight different cities. 
He bought them in his name, so he would get the frequent flyer miles. And he just handed me the paper tickets. And I just would walk into O'Hare carrying a paper ticket in a name that was not mine, <laughs> with no identification that matched that whatsoever, That's and crazy. just walk right through and get on the plane. I mean, yeah. can you imagine trying to do that now? It just goes to show you how much the world has changed. That would have been 93, 94, 95. So in 25 years, the world has changed completely. Yeah, it's remarkable. Do you feel like, you know, uh, uh, I had a very short stretch of like two years of doing that sort of beat reporter type thing. I didn't travel with the teams, but all the home games. And the farther away from that I get, the harder it is to sort of, um, you know, you have to lean a lot on the people who are doing that. Because to be a radio gas bag or a TV gas bag, which you're transitioning into, you need to work on the reporting of others. And it's tough with a schedule like yours to get back into the locker rooms and on the sidelines and everything else. Do you wish that you had the ability to do that more and be, be connected every once in a while in the way you used to be? It's almost impossible. I mean, the the reality is if you're if you're working locally, if I were a local sports anchor or a local talk show host um, in Chicago or anywhere – then that would be one thing. Then you can do that. You can go to the games. You can be in the locker rooms. You can develop relationships with practically all of the people in town that matter. But when you're at ESPN, um, th- there's just no way to do it. I mean, there's, you know, on any given night in the NBA, how many games are there um, and, and that might matter? I mean, that, in that league right now, there are so many. It's, it's ridiculous. There's just no way to, to have those kinds of relationships. And I think that with the direction that everything has gone in media, for better and for worse, it's got to be very difficult to have the kinds of relationships that I had and that people then did, and then people much more than I did. Like, I don't know what it's like for the the, the newspaper beat reporters anymore, but when I was covering sports locally in Chicago, the beat reporters had very close relationships with the people they were covering. They genuinely knew them. They'd call them all the time and get information and stuff like that, and they would – I don't mean this in a negative way, but they would protect them. They wouldn't report everything they saw. I didn't report everything that I saw. I saw things go on that someone like, you know, a a TMZ-esque kind of um, media would have feasted on. And I would never have shared any of that stuff because it wasn't my business and it wasn't, in my opinion, the audience's business. I think that has changed so much that I just don't know if it's possible for people to have those kinds of relationships um, the way we did 20, 25 years ago anymore. I, I'm sure that and, and the, the job has gotten harder, I think, to cover those things. And that it's not something I miss. I mean, I did enjoy it, but it's not something that I miss. I think that's a very, very hard job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you left the local area and got to ESPN in November of 96 uh, to do ESPN News. And it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, just a couple years later that uh, they approached you about doing Mike and Mike, and that's sort of the rest is history, which is crazy to me when I'm talking to people about the steps of their career. You get to 99, and then from that point until this year, it was the same gig, which is unbelievable. Um, what did you think of the idea of doing that show with Golick and doing morning drive time when you took the gig, were you, were you, was your thought, I could do a couple of, I could do a couple of years at this hour and then I'll move to something else. Yeah, I took the job because I wanted, so, so I was an anchor on ESPN news and um, that was before there was no, I mean, when we started, when Mike and I started, there was no PTI. There was no first take. There was no cold pizza. There was no, none of those shows existed around the horn, which you're on all the time. Um, none of those shows existed. So the, the ultimate goal of a sports broadcaster was to be on SportsCenter. That was when the SportsCenter anchors were Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann and Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and Bob Lee and Charlie Steiner and Robin Roberts. Um, I mean, these were iconic uh, people, and that was my goal. I wanted to be in that role. And and so I was getting a, a few opportunities to host SportsCenter, and when they asked me, they approached me because Mike was doing the show with another uh, host, a guy named Tony Bruno, and he left, and they and sort of uh, left them in a, in a little bit of the lurch, and they needed someone in a hurry, and they knew I had a bunch of radio experience in my days in Chicago. Um, I initially really didn't want to do it because my, my goal was to be on SportsCenter. But I thought if I do it and, and the people here, the management at ESPN hears me and they like my work and they think maybe they will think differently of me, maybe I will, it will lead to bigger and better opportunities. So I really took the radio show as a stepping stone. I thought it would be an opportunity to, to launch into something 
bigger and better. And I never had the wildest dream that it would last as long as it did or that it would become anything even remotely approaching what it became. What was the schedule like when you first started on uh, your body was not yet used to the wake ups? What time were you waking up and what were your tricks to try to get your body used to it? Well, you never get used to it. So so <laughs> I am now working with a bunch of people because we're on the same very similar schedule to what I was on all those years. And so through our rehearsals now, I see members of my staff over the uh, on the, the staff on the new show on Get Up who are, are walking around looking like they've been hit by a truck. Um, <laughs> and, and they keep asking me, when do you get used to this? And I said, you never do. You never get used to it. What you get used to is you get used to um, functioning when you are tired. You get used to you, you, you understand that you are going to be able to function even though you do not feel your best. But you never get used to getting up at three o'clock in the morning. You just don't. It's the middle of the night, and it's it's not natural. It's it's not. I've I've seen sleep specialists. I've talked to a million different people, and and I have I have um, grilled everyone I know who has done mornings longer than I have about about what their tricks of the trade are. And the reality is, it, it's just an un, a slightly unnatural way to live your life, and you're going to feel tired a lot of the time, and you just become accustomed to that. But the trade uh, off of that, which I wouldn't, I would not give up for anything in the world, is that you have a lot of your day to yourself. And so, over the 18 years that I did Mike and Mike, my older child, my daughter Nikki, was born the year we started the radio show. She was born. We started in January. She was born in September. My son Stephen was born two years later. I was at school to pick them up literally every day. My, my favorite story about that is when, when Nikki was in first grade, um, the, the, the teacher asked a bunch of the parents to come in and just talk a little bit about what we do for a living and how it serves the community, which I needed to stretch a little bit to come up with a way that what I did served the community. But <laughs> I figured out a way to make it sound like I was, like I was benefiting people. And so I, I came in and I talked to the, the first graders and, and I took questions. And then when I was leaving, the teacher pulled me aside. Her name was Miss Hoover. And she said to me, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. And she said, I've been a teacher at this school for 30 years, and you were the first dad I've ever had who knew every kid's name. Hmm. Um, and, and that was the greatest. That, that I still remember. It's one of my fondest memories. And, and um, you know, Mike Golick told me that was going to be the case, and he was 100% right. And Golick and, and anyone who knows him at all, and I know how well you know his son, um, you know, Mikey Jr., is yeah. – there is no one more dedicated. You've never met anyone. You've never got a closer family in your entire life than they are. And, and part of that is just making the commitment. But I also do believe that part of it is that throughout the, the time that his kids were growing up, Mike was around. Uh, yeah. He was around as much as any working parent I know. And so have I been. And and so I, I, I would not trade that for anything. And I think it is going, I really hope, I believe that it has been really good for my kids in their life. And I really hope that it will be, as they grow up and go on in life, they're 17 and 15 now. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I've, I've written four books, and I, I was a 24 handicap when, when we started doing the <laughs> radio show, and now I've got it down to an eight. So, nice. um, you know, there are a lot of benefits to having a lot of your day to yourself. And I guess that explains why when you decided it was time to move to something else, you didn't push for a change because I was surprised in, on both accounts that both you and Golik said, no, 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 we'll stick with this time zone because I would have been kicking and screaming and ready to get out of it. You know, the, the, there's two pieces of that. So there's, there's the, the uh, pluses that go along with the minuses, the pros that go along with the cons of the hours. Um, I, I personally, I think there are more good things. So when I I'll, quickly, when I first started on ESPN News, we worked late at night. My first shift was the last shift. I would be on the air until the last games on the West Coast ended, and I would frequently get home two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. I hated that. Hated that. I disliked that much more than I disliked getting up early in the morning. I would go to hmm. sleep. I'd wake up. It would be noon. I would feel like half the day was gone. Um, I had to go to work at night, so I never really knew how to fill my day. I was very bad at that. I, I disliked that schedule. And I know lots of people like it. I mean, I've talked to Scott Ben Pelt about it, and a million of the people who do the evening shows. And, and I guess if I had done that, you know, for 18 years, I would have figured out a way to make it work also. But generally speaking, I did not like that at all. Um, so the morning hours are not so bad. And the second part of it is, look, the reality of it is you spend 18 years of your professional life building up some equity in a, in, a, in a certain time 
um, I, there is benefit to that. You know, I mean, yeah, people in sure. American sports fans, many of them, God bless them, are accustomed to waking up with Mike and waking up with me. Um, and and I, I, I never had any doubt they would continue doing that with Mike when, when he and I, uh, when he continued the show without me. And I'm really hoping that many of them will continue doing that with me. I, I think you, you have some equity in a certain time zone. I think there's value to that. And I, I think it would have been, it's already an enormous shock to the system to be making a change of any kind. To be changing time slots, I think, would have been a lot. I, I, when, they, when they asked me, do you want, will you come do this in the mornings, I, I did not hesitate. I, I thought it made sense. When you were doing Mike and Mike, part of the show and part of the reason that people got used to waking up with you and got attached to it is, um, of course, they got everything they needed to know about the biggest sports of the day, but there was also a rhythm there, and there was a real story of who you both were. Were there moments ever where the character character of Greeny um, was something that you wanted to be able to escape from or that you felt was limiting? No, quite the opposite. Um, you know, Mike and I decided very early on, and we had the luxury of doing this because no one was listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> that we really could do anything we wanted when we started. But we made a conscious decision that we wanted to do a show that was going to involve our families and our lives. Um, you know, at that time, sports talk was very kind of guy talky. Uh, that, that, that was a popular trend. And look, there's a place for that. I'm not suggesting that that is um, that that's a terrible thing. But that's not who Mike and I were. I mean, Mike and I were both married guys with kids. I, I didn't have kids yet, but I knew I was going to be. Um, and that just wasn't who we were. We were who we are. And, and we decided we were going to bring that to the air. And let me tell you, we got criticized for that like you would not believe in the earliest of days. We had, I can't tell you how many people wrote things about us. Why did these guys talk about their families? No one cares about what you're doing with your kids, whatever it is. Um, but I, I, I never questioned that it was the right thing to do. And um, I think that it was a big part of the success of the show was that people did feel like they knew us. Um, if I'm in an airport with my wife and my kids, people will walk up and they will say hello to my wife and my kids by name. Um, and and they will feel like they know them because they have been a part of the conversation. They have been, I mean, above and beyond, obviously Mike's oldest son now is, is a, a a significant on-air personality at ESPN. But even before that, people knew him. And and when he went to play at Notre Dame, I I think that was a big deal. When Jake went to play at Notre Dame, it was a big deal, not just to their family and not just to us. But I think it was a big deal to a lot of our audience because, you know, they had kind of watched these kids grow up through us. And um, I never I never questioned that. I never regretted it. Um, and, and I never had trouble with the character, if you will, because it wasn't the character. I mean, you know me. That's just who I am. Right. Um, for better or for worse, that's who I am. And uh, you can't you can't put that on like you could do. I, I would imagine if you did a half hour, a show that was a half hour once a week. Um, you could put on a character. Like Stephen Colbert, obviously, is the best example of this maybe ever. Um, When he did the show on Comedy Central, now that isn't who he is, but you put on a character, it's scripted, and you do that. You're doing a a live talk show for four hours a day, every single day, for better or for worse, you're just going to be who you are. And the audience is either going to like it or they're not. So there was really nothing to escape from because it was just my life in front of a microphone. Yeah. When you, uh, when you, we're leaving the show. Um, you know, it seemed understandable that after 18 years, you might be interested in doing something else. And I think everybody kind of got that. But because of the secrecy surrounding it, even after it had already leaked it, it was not the best of endings for a show that was really beloved. Is there anything that you would have or could have changed about that? I mean, I don't know what. Look, you look back on experiences in your life. Yeah, I'm sure there are things that, that we could have done differently and better. And there are a lot of things that could have worked out differently than the way they did. Um, but it, now with, with the time that has passed, I can speak only for myself. I mean, I look back on that experience with so much joy and so much pride. I mean, we, we, when we started, we were the, 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 the conventional wisdom in sports talk radio at that time was, you nationally syndicated sports talk will not work. Can't do it. It's a waste of time. It'll never work. And you can't do sports in mornings. The, the, the big all sports radio station, WFN New York did do sports in mornings. They ran Don Imus. Uh, he did his show uh, on that station in the morning. Um, and so they gave us the nationally syndicated morning show, um, which is, which is like, you know, where you go to die professionally. 
Um, and the fact that we turned it into what we did, I mean, I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of what we did. And I, I look back on it with great joy and, gr- and an enormous amount of um, gratitude. Um, and so that's, that's really the only way I view it. And uh, sure, there's always things that you wish had, had worked out differently than they did. Um, but I try not to dwell on it. Yeah, that makes sense. What's the best thing that you ever did as Mike and Mike outside of your work, whether it's throwing out a first pitch somewhere or going on Letterman or what was something that in that moment you were like, I can't believe we're here because of what we do. Well, in all honesty, my personal favorite, this is another one that can, is going to play right into your wheelhouse, was singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch. And the, the reason yeah. is, at Wrigley Field, and the reason is I didn't cover a ton of baseball um, when I was working in Chicago, but I did cover some. I covered a lot of games in that little press box that you know, which mm-hmm. is directly to the right of of the play-by-play booth where when I was covering those games, Harry Carey and Steve Stone sat. And I, I loved Harry Carey. I, I, I thought he was the funniest. He, he was I loved him. I absolutely loved him. I often refer to Harry Carey as my first friend in Chicago, even though I never met him. <laughs> um, but when I came to Chicago, it was the fall of 1985, and I was a freshman at Northwestern, and I didn't know anybody, literally anybody. And I was lonely at first, and, and um, I quickly discovered that in those days, the Cubs played all of their games in the afternoon because there were no lights at Wrigley Field, and they were all on Channel 9, and they had this announcer named Harry Carey, who was just the funniest person in the world. Uh, and it didn't make any difference what was going on in the game. He was just phenomenal. So I loved him. I always loved him. And I, and I really regret that I never had the chance to meet him. But I would sit and I would look directly to my left um, when he would do the seventh inning stretch. And so I remember well, the first time we did it, Mike and I did that three times. The first time we did that, I remember, you know, looking into the press box when, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever been up there, if you've ever done the seventh inning stretch, but you stand there through the top of the seventh inning um, and you're waiting because three outs, you know, it can take a right. minute and yeah. it can take an hour. So you're just sort of standing there waiting for the third out. And I remember just sort of looking through the glass at that press box, thinking to myself, you know, if you had told me when I was sitting over there that someday I was going to get to come in here and do this, I would never have believed you. Yeah. So that was a great thrill. Um, you know, we got we were invited to the White House and that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Going on the David Letterman show was phenomenal. I got to play tennis with Chris Everett. She was oh, nice. uh, one of my favorite people in the world when I was a little kid. Um, I loved her. So I, I was, that was a thrill getting to play with her. So th- those are some of the things that jump immediately to mind. But I would say singing, uh, taking me out to the ballgame in the seventh inning stretch would be really, really high on the list. I have not done that yet. One day, one day, I'm going to make it happen. So you're prepping for the new show, Get Up, and uh, you won't have to learn how to wake up early like Jalen and Beetle will have to. But obviously there's an expectation and I would assume a bit of stress because of the time and money and, and effort being put into this new production. How are you dealing with that? Or is that something that you uh, are, are not yet, haven't yet been struck by? I, I, I don't anticipate being struck by it. Um, I've had so many people ask me that question this week. What I would say is, that um, every single day that I ever went to work, whether it was in the earliest days on the radio show with Mike when when we had almost no audience, when I was on ESPN News when we first launched, when there was literally nobody watching um, or anything, I felt an enormous amount of pressure to do a good show and to do the best I could do. And I feel that exact same way now i can't do any more than that i under i am aware that there are other circumstances that are going on here that there are stakes involved in this that are different from things that i've done in the past but those aren't they aren't they're not something i can do anything about um the only way i can impact this is by doing a good show which i think i know how to do um, I, I, I am positive that Michelle Beadle knows how to do it. I'm positive that Jalen Rose knows how to do it. I'm positive that Bill Wolf, who is our executive producer, knows how to do it. So I feel very confident that we're going to do a good show. What will come from that, I really have no idea. And, and as I say, a lot of that will probably be determined by circumstances that are beyond my control. But I'm confident that when we go on the air on April 2nd, we will be good. 
I'm even more confident that when you give us a few weeks to sort of figure out which stuff is and isn't working, we're rehearsing and you, and we've already changed a lot of stuff in rehearsal, but it's not until you really get on and start doing it that you have a full sense um, through a little bit of trial and error of which things are working great and which things aren't working as you expected them to. So I think you give us a couple of weeks and I think we have a, a very good chance to be very good. And then you give us a year and I, I think we have an excellent chance to do an excellent show. Um, I, 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 would, I would say we're a good bet to do that. Um, and then what that will mean, I really have no idea. We, we've got to develop enough of an audience that it makes it work for the company. And I don't have a number in mind that no one has given me a, a plateau or a goal. I don't think that makes any sense. All I can do is go in there starting Monday and, and try and do a really, really, really good three hours and then spend the next 21 hours on Tuesday and then just keep going. And if, if there's one thing I know, it's, it's what it's like to do a daily talk show. Right. It's never ending. You know, it never stops. So there will never come a time when you can sit back and say to yourself, how is this going, big picture? Because, yeah. and you know this better than anybody, you know, you've you got to be so focused on what you're doing tomorrow that you really don't have time to worry about any more than that. So um, it, it is the God's honest truth that I, I guess there is pressure on me right now, but I don't feel it in any, in any different way than I have felt it in any other job that I've ever done. You know, that's obviously like the healthy answer. And I think people who have gotten to a place where they can say the best and the only thing I can do is to do my best and put a great product out and everything else is outside of my control. But that totally doesn't fit in with the persona of a neurotic Jewish Jets fan who's constantly disappointed, right? They're always looking out for what's the worst. So is this a cultivated attitude over years of working in a difficult industry? Is this something that you've read books about? Is this something that uh, over time at Mike and Mike you learned as you have different bosses or expectations or ratings or markets? Uh, where does this come from? No, I had that then too. <laughs> um, and, and I have I have all of that negativity. I'm, I'm a naturally pessimistic person. I've worked very, very hard, and I continue working very, very hard. Um, I'm trying to change that. And, and I, I actually was reading a really interesting book called Learned Optimism about this new school of psychology hmm. um, that, you know, I think that there is this – I have always been under the impression, I think there is a, 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 a commonly held belief that you're born one way or another. You're either sort of an optimistic – we all know optimistic people who always look on the bright side of everything – and we all know pessimistic people who always look on the dark side of everything. And I think that it has, it has been a commonly held belief that that was ingrained and that was not changeable. And, and there is a new school of thought that suggests that that is changeable. And I've been reading a lot about that lately. Yes, neuroplasticity. Um, I did a podcast on it. Neuroplasticity, okay. the idea that our brains can change so you can reroute it and make it easier for it to find the connections that lead you to happiness and satisfaction faster than the opposite. Oh, that's really interesting. So I, I, I like to go back and, and I will listen to that because yeah. th that isn't that isn't specifically what I've been reading about, but it is an interesting um, another interesting part of all of this um, psychology of, of positive thought. But either way, the point of it is um, that this isn't necessarily that I'm optimistic. <laughs> you know, it, it isn't necessarily <laughs> that I'm sitting here thinking, "Oh, this is going to be a smash." Um, it is just that I I don't. The things I worry about are more micro than they are macro. You know, yeah, I'm very sure. worried that I'm that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna. There's a point that I'm gonna want to make tomorrow, and I'm not gonna do it well. Um, I'm very worried that we're gonna have a guest on tomorrow, and I'm gonna want to do a really good interview, and it's gonna go badly. Um, those are the things I worry about. They're much more minute to minute, immediate um, issues than they are big picture concerns. If, if you know what I mean. There's no um, I, I honestly don't have time to worry about those because I'm much too busy stressing over the small stuff. I, I sweat the small stuff, um, which, uh, which is another famous book. You're not supposed to sweat the small stuff, but <laughs> I do. Uh, so what's your biggest competition? Is it Good Morning America? Is it Morning Joe? Is it Golic and Wingo? What do you think that people who are going to want to watch your show would have otherwise be, been watching or listening to? Listen, people would ask me that question all the time. When we when I was on Mike and Mike, I don't know what the numbers are exactly now, I, I, but I think at one point we had we were on like 370 radio stations, 
And I would always say, look, if I was enemies with every single person that was on up against me, then <laughs> I wouldn't have any friends. You know, like my competition. But not competition in a, in a negative way, not in an enemy's way, but in a, you know, if you're looking at when you're programming the show, what do you what do people want? What do you think they've been wanting or, or taking in before this? The competition is literally every person doing a television show in the morning. <laughs> um, that's that's right. I mean, there are so many options in the morning, um, and and we're going to be one of them. And you can't. The one thing you can't do, in my opinion, is design a show with the intention of making it different. So, in in the same way that a very bad reason to do something is because it's the way you've always done it, I think it is an equally bad reason to do something because it's different from the way other people do it. Yeah. You should do things that make sense to you. I, I, I've been quoting Adam Sandler a lot lately, which is funny, but <laughs> I remember what, reading an interview with him many, many years ago when he was the, 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 the biggest star in Hollywood. He had made like three or four huge movies in a row, like the Big Daddy and, and um, The Water Boy and, and, and whatever movies came in that little span of time. Um, and he was known, they were saying that he had, he had invented a genre and he had recreated. He was the, the king of comedy, whatever it was they were calling him. And I remember they asked him, you know, what was your thinking behind doing this? How, how did you decide you were going to change the paradigm of the way people are doing comedy and movies? And he said, my friends and I just sat around and tried to think of the funniest stuff we could. And that's this, those are the movies that we made. And yeah. I think that that's the explanation. Like, I know what makes a good sports talk show. I, I mean, I, I, at least I know what I think does because I hosted one for 18 years and I've been consuming them nonstop my entire adult life. So I have some pretty definitive ideas of what makes a good sports show. And Michelle Beadle has some very strong ideas, some of which are the same as mine, some of which are different. Jalen has his ideas. Bill Wolf has a whole bunch of ideas. We have a terrific and talented staff and crew that are working on it. And so we've, we've all brought sort of our own sensibilities to the, to the mix. And what will come out of it will be like some big mashup of, of all of those different um, sensibilities. And, and so it isn't about, you know, does it look like Good Morning America? Does it look like Sports Center? Does it look like anything? Um, it'll look, it'll, it'll look, I think it'll be its own thing. Like it, I, my, my view on a show has always been that it is, it is its own living, breathing organism. It take, if, if it is successful, it takes on a life of its own. And this will take on a life of its own, and it will take on a shape and a texture and a feel and a sensibility that is uh, the combination of mine and Beatles and Jalen's and, and our production staffs um, over the course of time. And it will not be fully formed for a while. Like what we are on April 2nd will not be what we ultimately become. We will ultimately become um, what, whatever comfortable place we all land in together and and that'll be something that only we could create because it'll be unique to us um, yeah. in the same way that that all these other shows that are personality driven could only be created by the people who are hosting them because it's unique to them. And um, and, and so, you know, the competition is everyone who's on in the morning. And our job is to find enough of an audience that makes it a success for the people that we work for. And um you know, I, I feel good about our chances of doing that, uh, but I, you know, I don't even know exactly what it would mean. Right. And I'm sure you're still figuring this out. Can you give us a hint of any of the ways in which you are going to supplement interviews and, and conversation? Is it human interest? Is it goofy gags? Is it incorporating New Yorkers on the street? Do you have any of those bits kind of figured out yet? Yeah, no, it's not so much the bits. Um, we're trying to put the, we want to launch as, as a place Look, people have been waking up in the morning for 40 years or however long it has been now, 38 years, with SportsCenter in, in the old days with re-airs of the overnight shows and now, of course, with the, the live sports centers that have been on in the mornings for whatever it's been the last 10 years. So there's an audience that is accustomed to that and conditioned to that in the morning. Um, I don't think you want to come on the air and be 180 degrees away from that. So, you know, you're going to get the news and information in the morning from us packaged in a little different way. And the word that we continue to use to describe that is pace. We're going to do it. Mm. We're going to be moving fast. We will start every hour. We, you will, if you put us on for the first 10 minutes of, of, uh, of every hour, you will be, if we have done our jobs correctly, completely caught up on absolutely everything that has happened in the world of sports 
with a little perspective on each story, a little bit of analysis, a little, hopefully a little bit of a humorous take on a few things, but with pace. We will be moving through things quickly, and that hopefully will be our calling card. First and foremost, sports fans need to know and trust that we're, we're there for them. They want a sports show. We're going to give them that. And then slowly but surely, when we have earned the right to do it, I think you can start incorporating some of the goofier stuff. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but I, don't, I don't think you can start with that. I, I think sports fans have the right to expect us to do a really good sports show, and, and I believe that that is certainly our intention, and I certainly hope that that's what they will think that we are right out of the gate. So April 2nd, 7 a.m. on ESPN. Yeah. Uh, and then every single and then it'll re-air on ESPN too. So, like the the morning um, block has never really been programmed that way for 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 years. When when it was Mike and Mike, and then first take, and then his and hers, for example, when that was the morning block on ESPN two, the Sports Center was on ESPN. The, the the people who were waking up in Los Angeles and in Denver and in San Francisco and in the Western time zones were really not waking up with, with the with the clock the way it was designed to be. Like Mike and Mike was a morning show. We designed right. that to be a show that was meant to be in the morning and this will be a show that is meant to be in the morning. If you wake up at seven o'clock in the morning in LA for all those years, we were done. <laughs> you know, uh, so now we we will we will be airing everything pushed back three hours on ESPN two. So if you wake up and if you're listening to this conversation right now in Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or anywhere. Or if you west, wake up really late like I do. Or if you wake up really late <laughs> like you do and you want a, a, tradi- a, a pure, a classic, traditional morning show, you will have that option. You will be able to watch nice. us at, at 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the morning on ESPN2, which is something ESPN has not typically done. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a real dive. Um, into the morning and a different way into mornings um, for the company. And, and, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you'd like to be gifted with? I mean, a realistic one or like a superhero talent? Uh, either one. Well, I mean, a superhero talent, uh, there's any number of them. I would love to be able to fly. I mean, I think that would be outstanding. But if there's one talent I do not have that I would love to have, I would love to be able to sing. Um, yeah, that seems to be the, the one I everyone wants. Michael, like, <laughs> yeah, he was a great singer. And I would love to be, here's a, want to hear a, a little tiny minor tragedy? When yes. I was a kid, um, we had to play a musical instrument in school and so I played the trumpet and I was actually a reasonably good trumpet player from fifth grade all the way through high school. And, and I can read music and all of that. And well, I tried so hard to convince my kids to either play the piano or the guitar, because I would love to be able to play a musical instrument now, but who the hell wants to hear me play the trumpet? Totally I mean, agree. Just sitting around by yourself playing a trumpet. So unless I feel like joining some sort of brass band, <laughs> uh, being, the ability to play the trumpet is a completely wasted uh, skill, which I'm sure I no longer have because I haven't played the trumpet since I was 18 years old. So I would I would say it would either be it would be something musical. It would either be the ability to sing or the, I would love to be able to play the piano. I, I would love to. I actually did at one time briefly in my adult life, took a few piano lessons and then I just couldn't stick with it. It's something to, to get really good at it, it's something you have to, to really dedicate more time and energy to than I was going to be able to do. But I would love to play the piano. It is really hard. When I, I played clarinet forever, another sort of useless skill at this point, and I would much rather be good at the guitar or the piano. But I tried to pick up the guitar, and you don't want to play hot cross buns for two hours when you're right. an, an adult, right? You want to immediately play the, the songs that you know, the good ones. And so it is incredibly frustrating. Uh, number two. Your Desert Island album, you can only have one. That's it's such a good question. I, you know, I, I go through different phases. If you had asked me that question uh, six months ago, I would have said Paul Simon, Graceland. Mm. But I, I went to see Paul McCartney at the Garden um, in uh, whenever that was, September. And since then, I, I mean, I've always liked the Beatles. Like, like I'm not anyone who doesn't like the Beatles. But since then, I have completely rediscovered my, my love and appreciation for the Beatles. And there is a Beatles channel now on Sirius 
that I listen to all the time. And, and so I've been listening to a lot of the Beatles. And, and if, you, if you ever hear those specialty channels on Sirius XM, I really like them. Because it's not just the music, but they have all these little interviews and they, they talk to people about how meaningful the music is to them. And, and, and they talk, you hear interviews with Paul McCartney and John Lennon about, about what they were thinking about when they wrote songs and all that kind of stuff. So I've really been enjoying that. So, so I might at this point say Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm. But, um, but I, I, or, I mean, look, there's so many. I, I, I could be easily talked into um, the Rising and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. I like a lot of music from that era. But, but if, you, if you made me pick one, I, I think right now I would pick Sgt. Pepper's. That's a good one. Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? <laughs> that's such a good question because there's a lot of different ways to go about that oh you know, totally what would you like the opportunity to to, to experience i mean I, I think like if you guaranteed me that i was going to be that i was going to return safely like it might be really <laughs> cool for one day to be an astronaut or something yeah. like that you know, to see like what was going on in outer space um but 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 and then and then there's like I sure would like to know what it would like what it would be like to be like George Clooney like I mean to live life like that I just can't even fathom um, having been someone who when 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 I was a little kid like all the girls in school would ask me to ask other boys if they liked them um, like that was a that's a terrible little boy to be you never wanted to be that <laughs> so like uh, to be someone like George Clooney for a day I think would be a lot of fun so. It would be one of those two. It would either be an astronaut or George Clooney. That, that makes and sense. If, That's if usually George how it Clooney goes. If George Clooney was an yeah. astronaut, then you'd really there you go playing an astronaut. That, that's my dream. So you want to be George Clooney in that one movie with uh, with uh, Sandra Bullock, right? Wasn't, point. Wasn't... He was in a movie where he was an astronaut. <laughs> there I didn't you go. See it. I didn't. I didn't see the movie. Uh, which is hilarious, considering I'm sitting here telling you that it's my dream. That's all and you've ever actually, wanted. Yeah, it was actually out there, right there for the taking, and I didn't take advantage. Of it. I think we know what your plans are for tonight. <laughs> You're going to watch Gravity. Yeah. <laughs> um, number four. What's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, the most scared I've ever been. Uh, it's a it's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll make a funny answer because I, I, the, the serious answers would be would, would be too serious for the for the conversation. I'll give you a funny answer. A couple of years ago, I told this story on the air. A couple of years ago, uh, my son Stephen was a uh, played AAU basketball. We went to a basketball tournament over a weekend with a whole bunch of other you know kids in in, in Rhode Island in some very small town in Rhode Island. And on the way there, we saw that there was a haunted house, like what looked like one of these really big, cool, extravagant haunted houses that you could go to. So what we all decided was a bunch of dads and a bunch of the boys, and it was a fun getaway weekend. We decided we would take all the kids to the haunted house. So we go to the haunted house. Now, in my mind, the kids are going to go in the haunted house, and I'm going to stand outside and drink beer with all the other dads. The next thing I know, the decision has been made that we're all going in the haunted <laughs> house. So I don't want any part of going in the haunted house. Okay, let me make this 100% clear. I don't want to go in the haunted house. So, but now I'm going in the haunted house because I'm too embarrassed to admit that I'm the only one who's afraid to go in the haunted house. So this is a true story. One of the other kids on Stevie's team had a little sister. She must have been seven or eight years old. And she is going in the haunted house. So I said to her, (laughs) I forget her name now. Let's just say it was Melanie. I said to her, Melanie, here, let's do this. I'll stand right behind you, and, and I'll just be here so in the event that you're really scared, you can just turn around and I'll tell you that everything is okay. And I ducked behind her, oh. and, and so that anytime she screamed, I knew something really scary was there. And the really <laughs> scary thing in a haunted house is the surprise. Like, of course. something is there, it isn't scary anymore, because you know that this knife-wielding lunatic isn't actually a knife-wielding <laughs> lunatic. But it's when he jumps out from behind the wall that it scares you to death. So I ducked behind, like, an eight-year-old girl, and every time she screamed, I would then open my eyes because I knew that, that something had happened and everything was going to be okay, and we went on. So oh that, my that is my scariest. And I told that story on the air. Um, and I took a, a very good deal of not so good natured ribbing as a result of it. That's uh, that's impressive for you to admit, for sure. Uh, number five, what would you consider your biggest failure? That's a really complicated question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> my biggest failure. I mean, 
there aren't that many things. I, I, I mean, I, I view that professionally, I suppose. Um, I don't, I don't know that I've had any huge failures in my personal life that would jump to mind. Um, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I mean, I, I once got fired from a job without being told about it, but, but I mean, you know, like I, I went, I was, I was working hourly and I went to the wall to see what my hours and the schedule would get posted two weeks in advance. Uh, you would go to the wall and write down your hours. And I went up there and my name wasn't on the list anymore. And I had to go in and ask why I, I my name wasn't on the list. And they told me they had eliminated my job. That really wasn't my failure. Um, Boy, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't want to cop out on it because I'd like to give you a really good answer, but I think I need to think about it because I, nothing is jumping. That's not to say that I've succeeded at everything I've tried, but, but most of my failures feel kind of, you know, temporary. They feel, um, right. they, they, they feel like, like, like passing things. I, I, I don't look back on anything and think to myself, my God, if only this had worked out, my life would have turned out so much better because, um, I, I don't, there aren't too many things in my life I would change if I could. You know, I'm one of the luckiest people that I know. Uh, I've, I've been married for 20 years. I have a wonderful family. I have two healthy, fabulous kids. I have the world's best dog. Um, and I have uh, a job that I love. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have. I don't want this to sound like I've never failed at anything because I've certainly failed at any number of things. But I don't have any big failure that I look back on in my life with great regret. I really don't. Yeah. You know, that just actually speaks to what we talked about earlier, which is that if you are naturally grateful or if you convince your brain to find gratitude faster than other feelings, then you can spin those things to positive And then you never, you know, you never find yourself uh, stuck in a rut where you blame decisions or failures for the fact that you can't get past them. So it's a positive thing. That yeah, you can't I think so. I mean, I, 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 I think people... I, I, I'm, no, I'm positive that there are people who look at back on their lives and they, they really strongly wish they had made different decisions, big decisions. Um, I, I, of course, I can look back on my life and think of a bunch of, you know, decisions that I wish I had made differently. But I'm talking about big sort of yeah, for sure. decisions where, where you faced a significant fork in the road and chose the wrong path. Uh, I, 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 I'm very fortunate, I guess, to say yeah, that. I, don't, I really sure. don't think I have any of those. That's good. Um, number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Oh, there's no question. Um, it is the fact that I obsess over everything. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I am, I am OCD in a different way that there is, there's obsessive compulsive disorder is one of two different, it, it, well, maybe it can be more than two things. I'm not an expert. As I always say, I'm not a doctor, I'm a patient. Um, but I think most people, when they think of OCD, they think of people who have to like touch the stove five times or something right. like that. I don't, I don't have that, but I do have obsessive, uh, a, a, a mild obsessive disorder. I obsess over everything and that's not always a great way to live your life, but it, I do think it is a very good way to be, um, to be a successful person because there is no stone that goes left unturned in For my sure. life. I probably, yeah. I would be better. I would probably be better suited. I'd be, I would be a happier person sometimes if I turned over less stones, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I go to sleep at night thinking about things, stressing about things, obsessing about things. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm almost never able to fall back asleep because I start thinking and worrying and, and obsessing over things. And I, I think that that has contributed greatly to, to the successes that I've had in my professional life. Um, yeah. I don't think it's a particularly healthy way to live, but, but I, I, I do think that it is, um, the quality that I have that has been the most um, significant in my professional life. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I mean, my dream in life is to someday shoot par. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I have, I, I love, I've become like, golf is almost like a religion to me. I can't explain how much I love it. I did not take it up until I was an adult. I did not play golf as a, as a child. Um, which I regret. Um, I, I have I have fallen in love with it, um, and so I, that's a cheap, easy sort of half joking answer. Because I'm sure there are a lot. If I gave it some thought, I could give you a much deeper, more significant answer. I should call um, your wife. That'll come fast. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there are any number of things that I would love to improve upon. But but if you ask me, like the first thought that I had when you asked the question was, I'd love to be better at golf. 
like there I, you go. I would, you know, I, I would love that. Um, I, I would love, like right now, I, I, I generally will shoot in the low 80s on an average day. I would love to be one of these people that makes a run at par almost every time they go out there. I know a lot of guys who shoot in the mid-70s on a good day. They'll shoot 71, 72. I would love to be one of those people. Well, I'll start crossing my fingers for better weather. you got to get back out there to get better. <laughs> that is ridiculous. I have yeah. not played since It's been right. awful. Uh, number eight, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Well, um, but three words. Um, you know, that's a really good, that's a tough one, boy. I mean, that's one that you, you need to think about. These, the, the, the first, I will answer it with the first thing that jumped to my mind, which is tries really hard. Um, you know, uh, like the character that I like on TV the most of anybody lately, uh, the most of any relatively recent television show, is the character um, played by Ty Burrell of Phil Dunphy on Modern yeah. Family. Do you, do you ever watch that? Do you know how, yeah, for sure. Like, and I always tell my, my, my wife and my kids how cool I think he is, and they laugh. And because, <laughs> and I understand that he is not meant to be cool, but to me he is, because he's just a guy who is just trying as hard as he can. And he gets half the things he tries he gets wrong, but it's always he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to do what he thinks is best. He's, he's, given, he's enthusiastic about everything. He's trying with everything, and 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 even the things he gets wrong, um, you know, he's he's. I, I, I consider him um, almost a little bit of a hero. So so those were the first three words that jumped to mind. I, I don't know if that's a great answer, but but that was the first thought I had when you asked me the question. Yeah, it's a good one. Finally, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast? Oh my goodness. Um, of, of all the people in, on planet Earth? Yes. Meaning of everyone. I mean, you don't mean presuming like someone I might have a chance at getting. Someone I know. Uh, who do I think you should have on the podcast? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, like I say, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, lately by people who do entirely different things. Like a lot of my, in this time that I've had off, um, I've become much more interested in things that I, I didn't have time for. And I hope that that will stay like, you know, when you're doing a four hour daily talk show, as I did, now it's going to be a three hour daily talk show. It takes up so much of your time um, that in, in the last few months, like I've, I've seen so much more than I had before. Um, like, like I, I, I met and spent some time with the actor, John Krasinski. That dude is just a fascinating guy. He is smart and funny and really, really interesting um, you know, people like that, people who write and create things, um, you know, are, are people that I find really interesting to find out how they did that. Like, like, like if you if you gave me the option of any person in the world right now that I could interview, so I'll make this your person, um, <laughs> I would say Lin-Manuel Miranda. I, I, I mean, oh, good one. Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, did you see Hamilton? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've seen Hamilton three times. I, I, I've probably listened to the soundtrack from start to finish. A thousand times. I think it is one of the genuine work of, works of genius um, that 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 I'm aware of um, in 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 my lifetime. Um, so so if you could, if I could interview anyone right now, of, of all the people in the world, he'd be the person that I would most want to talk to. I I want to figure out how that guy did that. Yeah, how the it's pretty hell, amazing. How the hell was there nothing, and then all of a sudden there was that? Yeah. and and the only thing that came in between those two started you know came from your brain i i have it is it is i'm in awe of what that guy did so um that's that's the person who came to mind well it was awesome talking to you i don't know if i'll be able to get lin-manuel miranda but for now you'll have to do so i appreciate you spending some time with me it is my pleasure sarah it's always good to talk to you and i hope i'll see you soon yeah i look forward to the new show Thanks, Sarah. That's what she said this week's that's what she read is a piece by wright thompson on espnw and uh, it's also in the magazine, the April 2nd issue, called Pretending to Be Okay about Gino Oriema. And I found it so fascinating because, as with every single year, the conversation surrounding the UConn women's basketball team is, are they bad for the game? Or why is no one watching? You know, why, all these ways to try to skew the success of this program as somehow a negative, as indicative of, of a lack of talent in other areas in the women's game, as opposed to a incredible achievement 
by a, a handful of women every single year who will settle for nothing less than the best and who are willing to go work under Oriema because they're willing to be worked to the bone with this combined and, and shared goal of perfection. And in some some seasons, it is actually perfection. Uh, but it reminds me of Serena Williams sometimes talking about her uh, her career. She said, it's not news if I win. It's news if I don't win. And that's such a difficult standard to lift up, live up to because um, unless she's setting a new record, it really is, oh, Serena won again? Well, that's expected. Um, and that's the same way it is for UConn. And, and here's a, a, a little chunk of this Wright Thompson story about Gino. A bowl of turtle soup arrives. The waiter offers to pour a shot of sherry in it. Please, Gino says, before turning back toward Ben. He's talking about the first title in 1995 and how that felt so satisfying. I gotta say, he says, it's been all downhill from there. Unless we win a national championship, it's a bad year. All coaches face stress, but Oriama's personal grinder annihilate all comers during the regular season and let everything ride on six NCAA tournament games is a crucible his former star Sue Bird calls a mind bleep. The need for perfection in conflict with the human inability to ever actually achieve it, seems like a recipe for a one-way ticket to a loony bin. Oriema laughs and smiles. I got a bag of pills in my briefcase, he says. I got issues. It's yet another one of Wright Thompson's incredible profiles, but I think it sheds light on a man and a program in a way that we haven't seen him before, and an understanding that when things went wrong last year, and when they didn't achieve the perfection that they're so used to, when they got bounced, and they didn't make it um, what that was like for the program, what that was like for Gino, and maybe a little bit uh, a little bit surprising the way they handled it. So the story is called Pretending to be Okay by Wright Thompson. You can find it on ESPNW.com or in the magazine. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.